Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1211 in that Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to show you a short clip as we get ready to get going today. This is from YouTube, a bunch of YouTube clips that somebody has put together. And it's a series of people getting what they deserve. All right, so let's take a look at the screen. There's something satisfying about it, right? There's something that just feels right about that. And it uh, comes back to a principle called karma. And it's the idea that what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. And if you do good, good comes back to you. If you do bad, bad comes back to you. And it is tied into many of the major religions of the world. However, Christianity is not one of them. And we're going to talk about communion today as we get ready to prepare for communion in a little bit. And although karma uh, in some ways kind of makes sense and in some ways uh, sort of seems fitting, uh, and again, many around the world ascribe to it completely, when we look at Jesus, and in particularly when we look at the cross of Jesus, we're going to see that karma doesn't work in light of what Jesus has done for us. Let's take a look at our text today. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's an awesome chapter. I encourage you to read the whole thing, but we're just going to read a few verses, starting in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're perfect forever. (laughs) Some of you found that hilarious, apparently, to to, (laughs) to have to tell your spouse that. So this chapter, the whole book of Hebrews actually is about... Uh, sort of the tension between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, uh, God's people were under a different, what's called a covenant, or a different contract with God. And under that contract, there were certain expectations and certain blessings and certain promises. But then when Jesus comes, we come into a new contract. I'm going to teach on this a little later in the summer. But there was some tension in the early church about how does that work, sort of going from old to new? What does that mean? The book of Hebrews is written to try and wrestle through some of that. We've been used to dealing with God this way, but now we're dealing with God in a different way because Jesus has changed everything. He's brought in a whole new way of relating to God. So the old doesn't work anymore. We're under what's called the new covenant, the new testament, the new contract with God. And so Hebrews is this wrestling match of how do we kind of reconcile the two. And that's what the author is getting at in these passages. And he's tying it back to this idea that seems very barbaric to us today, this idea of animal sacrifice, which many religions in the world participate in and which our Old Testament of the Bible is is full of. Uh, that there was this animal sacrifice system. 
and animals were regularly sacrificed, and the priests day after day would perform these sacrifices at the temple and offer these things to the Lord. And this is all changing, obviously, in Jesus. This, this whole system is coming to an end. And I just wanted to explain a little bit about it because it seems so strange to us. It seems so awful to think about uh, with our modern eyes. But there was a reason behind it, and the reason is important. And it all basically comes down to what we call sin. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Uh, you hear me quote that one semi-regularly, because I just to me it's such a good picture of what sin is. And it's easy to think about sin as just evil or whatever, but this is actually even simpler than that. It's that we've each gone to our own way. God has said, this is the way for you to walk in, and we have all said in one way or another, no thanks, I will go my own way. I will choose my own way. And there's a, a pride mixed up in, in that, and there's a selfishness mixed up in that. But we have all walked away from God's ways in one way or another. We have all done that. Uh, and as followers of Jesus, even still, we continue to struggle, this wrestling match between following God's ways and going our own way. And this going of our own way, the Bible calls sin. It is when we walk away from God's ways. And this becomes a problem not just because God wants us to walk in his ways. This becomes an even bigger and much more serious problem where God, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, is also the source of life for us. He is eternal, and he created us to be eternal with him. But when we walked away from his ways, when we chose to go our own way, we actually disconnected ourselves from life. He was the source, and we disconnected ourselves, and we went our own way. And because of that, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. We have rejected life and gone our own way and maybe didn't realize as we were doing that we were walking away from eternal life when we did that. We were disconnecting ourselves from God, who was the source of all life. And so the consequence of sin for us is death. That's where it ends for us because we have chosen to go our own way. It's the consequence of walking away from God, who is the source of all life. And yet God, Scripture says, loves us more than we can possibly imagine. He says he loves us more than he even loves his own life. And so he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a, a system, a, a way to fix this problem. And so temporarily, this idea of animal sacrifice is put into place. And what would happen in these ceremonies is you would bring your animal before the priests, and the priests would bring the animal before the Lord, and they would lay their hands on the animal, and they would confess the sin over the animal, and then the animal would be put to death as quickly as possible, painlessly as possible. And as that was happening, it was a way for something else to die so that we don't have to. It's something else dying in our place. Because if the wages of sin is death, and that death has to come, God puts this system in place and says, I will allow something else to die in your place. And sometimes the animal was then eaten as part of the priest's meal, and uh, it's not quite as barbaric as it sounds. But the, the principle is this incredible picture of the grace and mercy of God, that something else will die in your place. And the fancy theological word for that is atonement, that someone else is paying the price for you to, to deal with the problem. Uh, the problem is being dealt with, and in God's eyes, you are okay, because the wages of sin are death, and death was put on the animal instead of upon you. 
And so this is what happens in the Old Testament. This is the system in place, and yet was never meant to be permanent because uh, that's not quite fair. We're not equal to an animal in God's eyes, and we should, of course, love animals and, and treat them humanely, but Scripture makes pretty clear that when it comes to creation, we're up here, and the rest of creation is down here because we are the ones made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And so uh, an animal dying for us isn't quite equal. That's not quite justice. That's not quite fair. And so these animals would be laid down, they lay down their lives for our sake. When Jesus shows up for the first time in John's gospel, the prophet John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sacrifice of God. He's saying, Behold the one who will lay down his life for us. And so where animals did this temporarily, this is such a crazy shift, and this is Jesus the Messiah coming, and John the Baptist saying, Now this is the one and death will be put on him. Not an animal, but death will actually be put on him. And it was such a crazy thought that even Jesus' disciples didn't get it throughout the whole Gospels. Jesus was always telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And they just went over their heads every time. They just couldn't get their heads around it. But Jesus comes and says, I will lay down my life. I will put myself in their place. I will take the death that they deserve. And in so doing, the the demands of God's justice and his law and his holiness will be satisfied. We will be atoned for, not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus has done it for us. And so Jesus comes, and unlike an animal, which is not equal to us, Jesus is actually way greater than us. And so as Jesus... Jesus lays his life down, then the needs of law and holiness are satisfied fully. And God is willing to look at Jesus' death and say, okay, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus will take those wages. He will take those consequences himself so that we don't have to die forever on the other side of that. And so we call this, again, atonement. And when we come together at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table, which we're going to do in a few minutes, uh, we often quote Jesus' words at the Last Supper, where he took bread and he took wine, and he identifies with these things, and he tells his followers to regularly participate in taking bread and taking wine as a way of remembering what was done for you. And Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my body given for you, this cup is my blood poured out for you. And key words in those two phrases are for you. This was done for you. He loved you so much that he did it for you. He broke his body. He shed his blood for you. That's how big his love was. And he died for you so you don't have to die. He took your place. When the wages of sin was death, he took those wages. He took those consequences himself for you. And as his body is broken and as his blood is shed, people sometimes ask, why do we talk about blood so much? It seems a bit morbid that Christians are always going on about blood and Jesus' blood and singing about blood. And and it's not about the blood But scripture says a creature's life is in the blood. And so as Jesus sheds his blood, he's giving his life. But that's a good, beautiful picture too, because as Jesus sheds his blood, his life actually comes to us. Eternal life comes to us. Life in the spirit comes to us. And as his body is broken, out of his brokenness, forgiveness and grace flow into our lives. Out of the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, his forgiveness comes to us. And we, I think, like many Anabaptists and many Protestant churches, I think we have a kind of weak view of communion. When you look at what other denominations do, 
um, they have such a reverence for it. It's such a profound, holy moment, and sometimes I think we kind of whip through it as part of our service so we can get to the next thing. And yet for many Christians all around the world, when you come to the Lord's table, this is a place where we encounter Jesus. This is the place where out of his brokenness, his forgiveness and grace flow into our lives again. And as we remember what he did for us, and as we take in the bread, and as we take in, we don't do wine here, we do juice, as we take in the juice, we once again receive that forgiveness and receive that grace. We once again remind ourselves of what he did for us. We encounter his presence as we come to the table, and, and we do that together. We come to the Lord's table together. And the beautiful thing about the Lord's table is that everybody who wants to is invited to come. Everyone is welcome to come to the Lord's table. Jesus says, trust me, follow me, and if that's you, come to the table. And come and participate in this. And come and encounter Jesus here as we do communion together. In our text today, verse 11 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So this is the way it was. It was this temporary system. It was never meant to be eternal. And day after day, they just got to do it over and over and over again. And day after day, they are standing because you have to stand when you're working. But that's juxtaposed next in verse 12. It says, when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sacrificed down at the right hand of God. Jesus is sitting down because there's no more work left to be done to make us right with God. There's nothing left to be done. And so he can take a load off for all eternity because it's over. And when he died on the cross and said, it's finished, he was saying a mouthful in that moment. Sin is finished. Death is finished. The working is finished. The striving is finished. The law is finished. Never knowing where you stand with God, that's finished. And since it's all finished, I can just take it easy and have a seat. The priests in the temple stand day after day because they were always trying to make things right with God. When Jesus goes one time and offers one sacrifice, he sits down because the work is over. There is nothing more to be done to make you right with God. It's done. And so Jesus gets to sit and gets to enjoy the worship that we give him for all eternity that we were singing about today because it's finished. And so there's nothing more that Jesus can do to make us right with God. And if that's true about Jesus, then of course it's true about us as well. There's nothing more that we can do to earn God's love, to earn his favor, to earn the blessings. It's done. There is nothing left to do. In the last part of our verse today, verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What can you add to perfection? Right? What can you add to that? If you're in the Olympics and you do an amazing routine and you get 10 out of 10, there's, there's no better. There's nothing you can add to make that better. It's perfect. And if there's nothing Jesus can add to our perfection, then certainly there's nothing we can add to our perfection, and yet there just seems to be something in us that wants to strive and work and strive and work. i got to prove myself. i got to show him. i got to make it happen. And, and Jesus is sitting down because the perfection part is finished. There's just nothing left that can be added. And I love this verse so much. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because it's just, it sums up everything so perfectly. He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Uh, so there's two sides of the coin then because when I made you turn to your spouse and say you're perfect forever, some of you went, <laughs> that's funny to say to you right now. 
He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So he has made perfect forever those who are works in progress, is basically what it's saying. He has made perfect forever those who are on this journey of becoming more like Jesus. And yet, in God's eyes, which is the most important part, that's where we are perfect forever. So when God looks at us, our sin is not what he is looking at. Our imperfections is not what he is looking at. If we were to die in this moment and we trust and follow Jesus, we will stand in his presence forever because we have been made perfect forever, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus did. So his love for me is perfect forever. His favor is perfect forever. Scripture says, I have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I have it already. I can't earn it. I've got it because I've been made perfect forever in his eyes. Now here on earth, I am also being made holy. I am a work in progress. I am, I am working through things and I am becoming more like Jesus, I hope, as time goes on and, and we are... We are moving towards, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling and all of those things. So we understand we're not literally perfect in all we say and do and think because we're being transformed. But the most important part of, as God looks at us now, we are perfect forever. Forever! Not perfect until you screw up on your car ride home from church. Like, perfect forever. And there is nothing we can add to perfection. There's absolutely nothing we can add. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. We're going to head into communion in just a moment. And so where we have this, again, maybe even natural idea that says, karma makes sense. I get what I deserve. We see that in Jesus, our sin is put to death on the cross. But in Jesus, karma is also put to death. Because in Jesus, I don't get what I deserve. He got what I deserved. He took what I deserved. And there's a flip side to that too. So it's not just the bad stuff, the bad consequences that got dealt with by him on the cross. It's also the blessings as well. Because if I have every spiritual blessing in Jesus, that means I don't earn those either. I can't work for those or make those happen either. That if there is good that comes into my life, it is because of the work of Jesus and his goodness. And if there's bad that should come into my life that doesn't, it is because of the goodness and the work of Jesus and everything that he did for us at the cross. In the cross, all of the curse of the law is absorbed, and in the cross, all of the blessings of the law are released to us. And that cycle of karma gets broken as that happens. Grace is better than karma. Times a million. Times a million. And so as we look at the cross, and as we're getting to that in just a second, uh, if you have any questions, of course, as always, you can message us at questions at meadowbrook.ca. But we're going to head into the communion part, and I'm just going to read a scripture from Isaiah as we get ready to do that. And as we get ready to participate... Um, we are wanting to stay in this place of worship. We've had an awesome time of worship this morning, and God's word has challenged us, and uh, he has spoken to us through it. And I love this verse. This is my favorite communion passage. It's Isaiah 53, and one of the reasons I love it is because Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus, before Jesus walked this earth. Isaiah wrote this. The Holy Spirit showed him what was to come. And so Isaiah writes this about the Messiah that they were waiting for. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, even though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will once again see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will once again see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The whole gospel, the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord, 700 years before Jesus walks the earth, Isaiah prophesies this picture of what the Messiah would be like. And as Jesus got ready to go into that suffering and got ready to go to that cross, as he sits with his disciples at the Last Supper, he takes bread and he takes wine and he says, don't you forget what was done. Those of you who are serving communion can come on up and join me up here. And so the worship team is just going to pray quietly. We're going to pass out the elements. If you're not sure about any of this or if you're not comfortable with this, just let the plate pass you by. Please feel free to just observe. Uh, this table is open to anybody, but there's no pressure on anybody. And so we're going to pass out the elements. Please hold on to them until we come back together. And as we do this, Scripture says, before we participate, a person should examine themselves. And it's just a great time to do that. Just to take a few minutes, whatever that looks like for you, if you want to pray, if you want to be quiet, if you want to read your Bible, if you just want to listen to the music, whatever. But take a moment to examine yourself. If there's anything you need to talk to God about, now's a good moment for that. If there's anyone you need to forgive, now's a good moment for that. If there's anything you need to pray for or repent of, it's a great time for that. And as we pass out, we'll just keep this moment of reflection going, and then I'll call us back together. We'll participate together in just a few moments. I think God has set up this ceremony like this with food and drink is that all you can do with food and drink is receive it, right? All you can do is take it in. That's what it's for. And it's this great picture of the grace and forgiveness of God. We just receive it. We take it in. And if you've never done that before, then I encourage you, why not make today that day? There is grace and forgiveness available for you. And we just need to grab a hold of it and say, yes, Lord, I receive that and I will follow after you. And as we get ready to participate now, and we've had some time to reflect, 
There's just something so beautiful about the simplicity of this ceremony where we just say, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough to make me right with God. You're enough to bring me to eternal life. You're enough to provide for everything I need, every spiritual blessing. So I don't have to earn that. I don't have to strive for that. Karma died on the cross. And now it's just your grace that reigns and your forgiveness that is available. Would you take the wafer in your hand, a symbol of the body that was broken. For what I received from the Lord, I also made known to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. With thanksgiving, let's receive the blood of the Lord today. There's nothing we can add. There's nothing we can give to perfection. What we can do is worship the one who has given us this gift. And so I'll ask you to stand to your feet as we worship and close today. Well, Jesus, with our hearts, we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, that uh, though we struggle and stumble, though we are works in process, nonetheless, you have made us perfect forever. And when I fall short, I am still perfect forever in your eyes. And when I stumble and struggle, I am still perfect forever in your eyes. Not because I have made myself perfect, but because you have made me perfect. You have made us perfect forever. And we will rest entirely on that promise, Lord, because it's so good. And we will give you all of our worship. We will give you our lives in gratitude as we seek you and as we follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. There'll be a couple of us up here if you need anything. And otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday.